Joshua chapter 9, I'd like to read the entire chapter, but we don't have time for that. So let's start with verse number 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work wilily, and went and made as if they had been ambassadors, and took old sacks upon their asses, and wine bottles old and rent, torn, bound up, and old shoes, and clouted upon their feet, and old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua under the camp at Gilgal, and said unto him, and to the men of Israel, We be come from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us, a treaty. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, that's who these people are, Peradventure ye dwell among us. How shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are you? Who are ye? From whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt. All that he did to the two kings of the Amorites were that were beyond Jordan, to Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore our elders and all our, the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals with you and go for the journey, and go meet them, and say unto them, to the Israelites, We are your servants. Therefore now make a league with us. This our bread we took hot from, for our provision out from our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. And now behold, it is dry, it is moldy. And these bottles of wine which were filled were new. And behold, they are rent. These are garments and our shoes are become old by reason of the long, very long journey. And the men took of their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them that there would be peace. We ask Heavenly Father your direction as we consider this and related scriptures. Speak to our hearts. May we see the Savior. In this Old Testament passage, we ask in his name, amen. You may be seated. This evening, we'll go back to our ongoing study on practical faith, and we will be looking at Judges chapter 6, where we have Gideon's fleece. It should be a lesson, I'm trusting, of the clash between faith and unbelief, with the winner in this particular case tonight being a very weak kind of faith. Gideon was unsure about the will of the Lord. So he asked for God to, at first, drench uh, a sheepskin with dew while leaving the ground dry. We just read about this. And then, when that was not enough, he asked for the Lord to do exactly the opposite. And the Lord graciously did both. The Lord willing, that message will be about Gideon's fleece, his foil, and his faith. And in an effort to confuse the inattentive, I've entitled this message, 
Gibeons, please. Here in Joshua chapter 9, we have another battle between faith and unbelief. And once again, the winner is weak faith. The weak faith of the people of Gibeon. That community sent ambassadors to Joshua with a fleece of peace, and the Lord covered it. Hmm. Gibeon was one of the larger cities of the Hivites, a branch of the Canaanite nation. It was about six or eight miles south of Ai and Bethel, and about the same distance north of Jerusalem. Gibeon was a royal city, we are told, a capital city, an important city, and an influential city. It appears to be the center of a little community of a community of, of villages or cities, much like a bedroom communities. There was Gibeon, then there was Cherephiah, and Beeroth, and Kerjath Jerum. And they didn't seem to be governed by a king, but rather by elders or some sort of senate. In other words, what Gibeon did in this chapter probably reflected the democratic will of its citizens. There isn't a king who's made everybody in their city a slave, and you're going to do what I want you to do, and I've decided to make a treaty with Israel. It, it appears to have been a mutual thing. And this is an important point. It needs to be kept in mind, what we are seeing is the will of the people of Gibeon. What I'd like to do this morning is use Gibeon as another illustration of the sinner's salvation. And this time it is nothing but an illustration. It is not as concise as it was last week with Rahab's salvation. That woman was truly saved. These people are a picture of salvation. In other words, not, I'm not saying that every man, woman, and child in these cities are in heaven today. I would like to believe that some of them are. And I am quite sure that some of their descendants, a generation, two, three, four, or five generations later, some of those people are in glory. But uh, I'm not saying that everyone was. <coughs> Salvation from sin involves a personal relationship with the Lord. It's not a family matter. Right. It's not a community matter. Just because, your parents does, are, just because your parents are Christians does not mean that you are a Christian. Automatic relationship. doesn't work that way. And because you live in a nation that claims to be a Christian nation, that does not make you a Christian. And in fact, because you are a member of a sound Bible-believing Baptist church, that does not right. guarantee that you are a child of God. We're talking here about a personal relationship between you and the Savior. And if that's not there, all of these other relationships, despite being important, are not important enough to save your soul. They cannot save your soul. The question is, have you, in humble repentance, personally come to Christ Jesus the Savior, begging Him for grace and salvation? Yes. I'd like to consider what Gibeon knew, what Gibeon wanted, what she did, and what she received. In many ways, this will parallel what we looked at last week with Rahab the harlot. 
But we aren't surprised about that because all sinners are very similar. Our situations all end at the same dead end, so to speak. Salvation is essentially the same in every case, just the minor details. And we all are individuals. We have those, those details. Essentially, everyone who is saved is saved in the same way. So we can make this comparison. Let's think, first of all, about what the Gibeonites knew. They had heard about Jehovah, the God of Israel. They used his name, Jehovah, even though the Jews wouldn't use that name. They did. They knew that Joshua had brought down the city of Jericho. And more recently, just a few days earlier, they had actually won at Ai, which is just a few miles down the road. There was first a defeat there, and then there was a victory there. If they knew those details, they probably also knew that these were not simply a matter of military accomplishment. They weren't military victories. These were miraculous events from the hand of the omnipotent God. These are smart people. They're willing to admit things that our geniuses in the 21st century aren't willing to admit. So these people knew that God of Israel was bigger and stronger than themselves. They knew about the disintegrating walls of Jericho and the seven-day non-battle at the Battle of Jericho. They knew about what had happened to the two kings on the other side of the river, Zion and Og, kings of the Amorites. They knew that if they tried to fight against Israel in a military sort of way, they were going to be defeated. And even though Israel was relatively inexperienced in this stuff, they knew that they were in trouble. They knew that God had brought down the enemies of Israel. In verse number 10, the Gibeonites expressly stated that it was God who defeated those other communities and nations. If they knew about the Amorites, if they knew about Jericho, then they undoubtedly heard about the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. And if the Jerichoans, back to Jericho, knew about the Red Sea and the crossing of the Red Sea, probably these people knew about the crossing of the Red Sea as well. They were well informed. They knew these things, and they believed what they had heard about the Lord. They heard and they believed, but there is a difference in actually trusting and worshiping the God who does these things, did these things. Having said that, I think it's interesting to note that the ambassadors did not mention Jericho or Ai. They knew about them, didn't mention it. Because those just happened a few days ago, and the story was, we left when you were still out there in the wilderness. We've been traveling for days and days, weeks and weeks and months to get here. So they very wisely didn't mention Jericho, didn't mention Ai. So these people knew some important things about the Lord, and they knew important things about themselves. For, they, for example, they knew that they were in the gun sights of Jehovah. 
This is true of all sinners. Even sinful American professing Christians. They realized that the Lord considered them to be aliens, rebels against him. They might not have been able to define the word sin in the proper theological way, but they knew that they were sinners in God's sight, whatever that meant, and that they were in trouble. I think that probably the Canaanites had spies who were watching and overhearing the events that took place at Ai. Maybe watching from the heights down on Jericho. One verse in our chapter seems to imply that some of these events came as a direct result of what took place at Mount Ebal. I wish I had more time to get into that. But Israel was commanded to gather at a certain place in the land of Canaan where the Levites would read a specific part of the law. And when... uh, uh, Part of it was read, the people of Israel were supposed to say, Amen, we believe that. And then another part was read, and there was that uh, uh, antiphonal uh, Amen going back and forth across a valley at uh, a place called Ebal. Apparently, I wouldn't be surprised that the Gibeonites had heard some of that. And they recognized the holiness of God as a result of that. They might have heard Joshua quote Moses, from Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, God is talking to Israel through Moses, and hath cast out many nations before thee, including the Hittites, ooh, and the Gergesites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. When the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them, utterly destroy them, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son. His daughter shalt thou not take unto thy son. For they will turn away your hearts from following me, God said. Thou art a holy people unto the Lord. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Maybe the Gibeonites heard some of this they are afraid they are terrified the sinners of Gibeon knew that they were doomed if they remained in their current spiritual condition verse 24 they answered Joshua and said because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you us therefore we were sore afraid of our lives because of you and that's why we have come to you the way we have the sinners of Gibeon knew that they were doomed if they remained as they had been spiritually And in this, they were no different from our neighbors today and where we have all been. For we are all sinners in the sight of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. I could just multiply scriptures from both testaments of the sinfulness of man. 
The truth of the matter is, for the sinner, there is no hope whatsoever without Christ. None. There is no righteousness in any of us that can buy favor from God. We're empty. There are no acts of goodness. There is no religiousness that we can perform that will please the Lord. We must have new hearts. That requires the miracle of God. And the people of Gibeon were blessed of God sufficiently to have some degree of understanding of that particular point. In this chapter, there's a comparison between two different peoples, not a part of the chapter that we read. Gibeon and the rest of Canaan. The vast majority of the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and uh, Hittites, no. The rest of the nation took counsel against Gibeon. Why was their response different from the rest of their neighbors? Why was Gibeon different from their kinfolk, the other Canaanites? I'm sure the world would have uh, a different answer. Social media would come up with something else. But I believe that Gibeon responded as they did because of the grace of God. I'm not saying that God was responsible for all that Gibeon did, but that, that little desire for the Lord was ignited by the Lord himself. These people had, chosen, had been chosen by God to become his servants. They are going to be his servants. They didn't. They were not aware of God's working in their heart, but it was there nevertheless. They did what they wanted to do. They did what they thought was best to do. And they were united in that, as I said. It's interesting to think about the things that Gibeon knew. But what was it that Gibeon wanted? They said, we become from a far country, now therefore make a league with us, verse number 6. That means they wanted a peace treaty with Israel and with her God. They made no demands. They were willing to accept an unconditional surrender and a, a treaty based on that. No stipulations whatsoever. The whole demeanor, the whole language implied a complete surrender to whatever Israel chooses to do with us. We aren't told whether this was supposed to be an offensive treaty or defensive treaty. And I suppose we might say it was both. It wasn't just that they wanted Israel to promise not to attack us. A part of the treaty, which we did not fully read, included a statement that if Gibeon was attacked by others, Israel would come to their aid. And that was, in fact, what happens in the next chapter. In fact, the peace treaty was a key ingredient to the subjection of all of the land to Israel. Because of Gibeon, all of these other kings and tribes brought their armies together in one lump to judge Gibeon. Israel stepped in and the Lord defeated Canaan 
essentially in one battle. After that, it was just mopping up corners. The Lord was in the middle of it. In verses 8 and 9, the Gibeonite ambassadors declared themselves to be servants of Israel. It might be argued that this was just a polite language. This is political language. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. When lawyers are negotiating a complicated agreement, their words have to be precise. They have to be right on target. I believe that these Gibeonites were declaring themselves willing to be actual servants to Israel. We will serve you. And later, when they did become hewers of wood and drawers of water, servants to Israel's Levites, they didn't voice a single peep of quarrel. This is what we came to do. They got what they asked for in many different ways. They really meant themselves to be servants. If that's what Israel demands, if that's what Israel's God demands, then we will be servants to Israel. We are your servants. Therefore now make a league with us. Verse number 11. This Gibeonite attitude is probably the single most important missing link in 21st century evangelism. Much of the corrupt evangelism of today permits the sinner to come to God on that sinner's terms. It allows the Canaanite to remain a Canaanite while three times a year bowing before the Lord God of heaven. The current evangelistic attitude is not necessary, in that attitude, it's not necessary that someone become a new creature in Christ. You can still be an old creature and just do some religious things that we will teach you in the future. That is not the evangelism or the salvation that we find in the Word of God. Amen. The true gospel doesn't cease to be good news simply because it demands repentance for sin. It's still good news. Yes. The good news doesn't cease to be the gospel simply because it puts God above the sinner. He is glorified in this salvation. The gospel doesn't cease to be good when it demands that the saved become the Lord's servants. The scripture says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew or the Greek, the Israelite or the Canaanite. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It might be argued that all Gibeon, all that Gibeon wanted was to be saved from the army of Israel. They wanted to save their idolatrous necks. 
They're willing to say and do anything to escape the destruction that fell on Jericho or on Ai. And I agree that they didn't want to be saved, to save themselves in a sense. It's a natural response to what they had learned about God and the pronouncement of their condemnation. But I do not believe that it was to save their idolatrous necks. They were showing repentance and a willingness to sacrifice their idolatry in order to be saved. I think in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 we have similar comments there. Over the centuries, people have come to the Lord for various reasons. There have been people won to Christ by learning about Jesus' love and His sacrifice. And there have been people brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord by studying what Christ has done in and uh, for others. There are various reasons people come to the Lord. We're told in Hebrews that Noah was moved by fear to build an ark to the saving of his household. The reason for coming to Christ is not nearly as important as the actual coming to Christ. With that in mind, consider what Gibeon did. The city of Gibeon and her neighbors came to the Lord in the only way that they knew how. The way they figured out. I make no excuses for their lies. I don't condone what they did. Their lies about coming from a far off nation cannot be encouraged. They cannot be condoned. They should not be duplicated. God abhors lying and deception. A false witness shall not be unpunished. He that speaketh lies shall not escape. Proverbs 19.5 and then there's that important verse in Revelation. The fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, Revelation 21.8. But the people of Gibeon had not learned those scriptures. They were behaving as they probably always did. There are some cultures that are just deceitful cultures where lying is an everyday activity that children are taught how to lie from the moment they can speak. Maybe that's the way it was there. I don't know. But the truth is, that little white lie that you told yesterday is far heavier and more wicked than their lie because you know better and they didn't. Sin is sin. It will be judged. The difference is that you know God hates lies and that was something which perhaps these people are going to learn later. They don't know it at this point. Essentially what Gibeon did was to come to God despite the lie that they uttered in their coming. They threw themselves at the feet of Israel and the Lord. They separated themselves from the rest of their idolatrous kinfolk. They gave evidence of a little, tiny, infinitesimal faith. Won't you save us? Won't you deliver us? Won't you accept us? Sure, 
they did not deserve to be spared from the coming destruction. Sure, they didn't display great faith in a well-rounded, Bible-based theology. But then, neither did Gideon when he laid out that fleece. He should have known better. The Lord's already proven to him that he's there. And most of us didn't have much when we first came to the Lord either. No knowledge, perhaps, very little faith. But we heard that Jesus is the Savior. And that if we would humble ourselves before Him and trust what He did on Calvary, the Lord would save us. It was enough. What was it that Gibeon received? They received their desired peace treaty. They were saved from the uh, firestorm which was coming. It was already sweeping up from the valley down below. Verse 15, Joshua made a peace with them, or made peace with them, made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. That was based on an uninvestigated lie. And even though, and some of the more righteous in the nation were saying, shouldn't we check that out first? Shouldn't we check that out first? After the deception was later exposed, and when many of Israel were furious with Joshua and their leaders for making that treaty, Joshua and the elders declared, it's valid. We can't lie by throwing aside this treaty that they created by their lies. We're, we're stuck with this. It's true. But all the princes said unto the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear unto them. And so did he, Joshua, unto them, and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, that they slew them not. Verse number 26. What the vast majority of the world does not realize is that God is at war with them. They are rebels. And Jehovah treats his rebels as they deserve to be treated. What a blessing it was to the people of Gibeon to come to that understanding. Among the many things that sinners need is a peaceful reconciliation with the Holy God. And that is one of the results of the great work of our Savior. The blood which he shed provides the means for that uh, covering and reconciliation. Gibeon got their peace treaty. A second result in this case was the opportunity and the privilege to become servants of God. Most of the shallow, foolish Israelites believed that when the Gibeons were made slaves, they were assigning to them a horrible fate, a fate worse than death, living death for the rest of their generations. Very wisely, Israel's leadership did not consign the Gibeonites to become the personal servants or slaves of the people of Israel. Without a doubt, that really would have been a fate worse than death. The Gibeonites would sooner or later 
have been treated despicably. But that was not to be. We're not told how Joshua came to this conclusion to enslave them in a certain way, but it came from the Lord. He had learned his lesson about not consulting God. Now what do I do with these people? Tell me, Lord. And God explained it to him. I think this sentence of slavery was prescribed by God himself. The people of Gibeon, their wives, their children, their grandchildren, to the tenth and the nth generation, were ordained to become nethanims. They were ordained to become temple, and in this case, tabernacle servants. They would work directly with the Levites. They would work indirectly with the priests. They would take carts and donkeys or whatever means and go out into the countryside to collect wood to put on the altar for the burning of the sacrifices. Others would take pitchers and go to whatever water source was in the area to collect all the water necessary for that huge laver and all of the other washings that uh, those priests went through. They were servants. Some of their number had the responsibility of cleaning the dirty utensils, scraping up the dried blood that was all over the place, bringing in new sand for in and around the tabernacle. And for their service, these Gibeonites were rewarded with room and board. Oh, these poor people. But not only that, they were constantly exposed to the Word of God. Yes, yes. They heard and saw all the things about the tabernacle. Many of those things which picture the Lord Jesus Christ. There are few things more blessed in this world than just possess the word of God and hear the message of the Lord. There are few blessings greater than Christian parents and the opportunity to grow up in a Bible-believing church. A A fate worse than death, you say? These people began to associate with the best and most righteous people in the land of Israel. They rubbed elbows with priests and prophets. And the best, the most righteous in the the nation would come and offer their sacrifices. And these people worked right beside them. Maybe most of the time they weren't seen as servants. We just don't look at them, but they were there. They learned these things. They saw these things. David once said, Lord, a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. These Gibeonites had a job somewhat like David's doorkeepers. What an ultimate blessing this supposed curse was to these converted Canaanites. These people didn't just disappear into the pages of history. Like Rahab, we read of her over and over again. These Nethanims keep popping up as well. And they were honored people. The word of God does not speak evil of these people at all. Would to God these things were true of our families. In some ways it was better to be a Gibeonite than to be one of the uh, uh, regular people of Israel. Remember that you and I are not physically born into the family of God. 
We are Canaanites by nature and worthy of eternal extermination. But God has not only invited us into his nation, he's actually brought us that way. Brought us right in. Who are we? We're not, we're not worthy of spit. But we've been invited to join the Lord in his holy temple. Only if we come in humility, trusting him. There's no other way. Only if we come through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There still must be a sacrifice for our sins. There still must be that blood. And that sacrifice was made in the death of Christ. As sinners, we still must come to God through Christ at Calvary. Oh, wicked Canaanite. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Why not? Why not? What is your reason? What excuse do you have? You cannot justify your ongoing rebellion against God. He is coming. Your city is going to fall. Throw yourself down in mercy, pleading for mercy before the Lord. Surrender to Jesus. Put your trust for reconciliation with God in Him, in Christ. Please stand.